Greetings, my name is Mike Hewitt, and this is the fifth in a series of talks on the liberal arts called Tabula Rasa. In my last post, I discussed three levels of our natural wisdom heritage that a study of the liberal arts will lay bare. These are the universal, planetary, and human levels. Let me now remind you of what these are. Our universal heritage is that inner wisdom which we all share as vital parts of the real world. Our planetary heritage is the wisdom bequeathed to us by the tree of life from which we have all evolved. Finally, there is our human heritage, which consists of those precious stores of wisdom that have been aggregated, recorded and preserved throughout the history of humanity. Given that we do have such a tremendous wisdom heritage, any attempt to become more appreciative and conscious of this heritage on our part will always be effort worthwhile. And this is one very good reason for studying the liberal arts. They will help us to reconnect with our very own wisdom heritage. One of the main reasons that we need to do this is that many of us were brought up according to the unfortunate idea of tabula rasa. What this means is that when we were born, our mind was basically claimed to be a blank slate upon which our parents, mentors and teachers could effectively write whatever they liked. And whatever was written, it was believed, would then shape and determine exactly what we would later become. However, as we are all parts of that greater whole, which is the real world, the very idea of tabula rasa now needs to be challenged. This is because when we are born, all of the wisdom of the real world shines through us. To treat our mind as if it were a blank slate is in effect to steal this precious wisdom heritage away from us, or at least to cause us to forget all about it. The results of this can be seen all around us today. Many of us are suffering what seems to be an unfortunate state of collective amnesia, which means we no longer know, feel, or sense our true depth of connection with the real world. And I say unfortunate, because when we are aware of that connection, the wisdom of the real world will then be felt rising up within us, like a bubbling spring. It is to restore our natural connection with the real world, and by doing so, reopen the vital channels of our connection with it. Once reopened, this wisdom will then act as our guide, our teacher, our inner compass, and we will always know just what we should be doing at any given time. Without this connection, however, we will lack that strong sense of having our own internal guidance, as a consequence of which life can then seem to be rather confusing. And to get by, we'll then have to rely upon externally imposed rules, regulations, and codes of moralities that in the main have been decided for us. So what does this mean for the process of education? It means that one of the true purposes of education should be to show us how to access the tremendous wealth of wisdom that is already present within us. That, for the most part, this purpose is not being fulfilled, then puts us all in a very difficult position. How do we rectify this? What can we do to reclaim that heritage that is rightfully ours? Having been in this position myself, 
I can say that the best policy is a concerted effort towards self-education. We need to get ourselves educated. When we do so, we soon realize that it was not always like this. At one time, the liberal arts were the mainstay of education, and these showed us how to establish a clear connection with the real world. This they did upon two levels. The trivium which enabled us to cultivate the workings of our own mind, and the quadrivium which offered those vital tools needed to re-establish that vital connection. Having their roots in classical Greece, and probably before that the great civilization of Egypt, the liberal arts prevailed for thousands of years in various forms, and in doing so they educated and formed a great number of people. Even then, however, problems became apparent. One was exclusivity. They were generally reserved for the cultivation of free men, who not only enjoyed the kind of wealth that enabled them to be classed as being free, but also all of the tremendous benefits of the liberal arts. However, this no longer applies. In theory, at least, we all today counted as free persons, and therefore capable of studying the liberal arts in and for our own right. Through the study of these, upgraded and revised for a modern generation, we will then experience a reawakening of this vital wisdom within us. Once awakened, we will then find ourselves beginning to remember who and what we actually are. We will realize that we are the natural inheritors of all of the wonder, majesty and glory of the real world. Having realized this, everything will then begin to make sense to us. We will feel propelled forward upon a driving wave of knowledge, understanding and wisdom that having its roots deep in the past will then provide us with the impetus to take us forward to a brighter and more fulfilling future. In this sense, the key to our future has always lain in the past, while the key to our past has always lain in the present. Something that will help us a great deal is paying a particular interest to the language that we use. Wisdom speaks to us in a particular language, and unless we are alert to this, we will miss a great deal that can be of importance to us. However, bearing in mind the idea of tabula rasa mentioned earlier, the whole notion of language can get very tricky, particularly in the hands of those who've used language, not to educate and inform, but to condition propagandize and even colonize the human mind with values that are not necessarily natural to it. Is it natural, I ask, for human beings to feel so isolated and alone in themselves that they then feel compelled to compete against one another in a perceived rat race? The word rat, of course, says it all, as also does the idea of dog eat dog. And how often have you heard people being referred to as sharks? So lest our educational policy makers really take all of this to heart and actually start believing that we are no better than rats in a trap, it's time, I feel, for a change away from the direction of Skinner boxes and more towards the ancient spirit of the liberal arts, which exulted in the freedom, dignity and responsibility of what it truly meant to be human. Inevitably, this will always begin and be reflected by the language that is used. We need to recognize not just the language of practical and economic necessity, which using terms such as human resources or workforce often does no more than to degrade and dehumanize, 
of the language through which true wisdom is expressed. And yes, our earthly existence can be difficult, imperfect, and provide us with great challenges. But this is no reason to throw out wisdom for a language of reality that ultimately reduces us all to the lowest possible level. In order to be able to recover that wisdom, we will need recourse to two main languages, which are First, there are spoken and or written languages based upon the word. Second, there is a language of mathematics, which uses numbers as the vehicle of expression. In terms of the former, we have to be prepared to be flexible. There is an incredible amount of wisdom that has been recorded and written in various different languages, some of which are no longer even extant. When studying this wisdom literature of the world, which can include works such as the I Ching or the Tao Te Ching of China, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads of India, the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the Pyramid Texts of Egypt, we're generally reliant upon scholarly translations and as such have to take advantage of whatever grace there is to produce and publish these. In terms of the language of mathematics, we are on much surer ground because number is a universal language and as such more suited to the expression of universal wisdom. However, a certain amount of repatriation is needed for the simple reason that the language of number is no longer properly understood, taught or received. How can it be said that knowledge of the language of mathematics will enable us to go on and read the book of nature and by doing so make vital connection with that living wisdom of which all nature is an expression? This is the wisdom that, when assimilated, can bring the most incredible enhancements to our lives. Through it, we can directly connect with the vital presence of the real world, which, according to all ancient accounts and theogenies, speaks, sings and expresses itself through the universal language of mathematics. To the observant, the signs and signals of this language are everywhere to be seen. I mean, just look at the form of the flowers shown on the thumbnail to this podcast. However you care to look at it, this flower grows with a distinctive geometry all of its own. Implicit to this geometry is a presence of two triangles, one of which points upwards, the other downwards. Where have you seen this before? It is a symbol called the Seal of Solomon, and it is in a very real sense one of the vital keys to the wisdom of the great King Solomon. The downward-pointing triangle symbolizes the macrocosm, that great whole of which we are a part. The upwards-pointing triangle symbolizes the microcosm, which is ourselves conceived as a reflection or mirror image of that whole. As above, so below. There is a wisdom that is ever-present, mirrored at every possible level, including ourselves. Mathematics as such can introduce us to these great mysteries, many of which run very deep. Fortunately, the liberal arts introduce us to these in a graduated fashion, for which purpose the language of words provides the foundation for the trivium whose three subjects are grammar, dialectic and rhetoric. The language of numbers provides the foundation for the quadrivium whose four subjects are arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy. When studying the liberal arts, therefore, we're essentially dealing with two tiers, two languages, and two levels of approach to the wisdom of the world. 
and through the combination of these we will then have the keys to everything that we've ever wanted. We'll be able to explore all of the incredible mysteries of the world. We'll be privy to nature's very own book of secrets. And above all, we'll begin to understand who and what we are as human beings living here upon the planet Earth. Given two languages to consider, whose media are words and numbers, together with seven subjects of the liberal arts, poses an important question. Where is the best place to start in order to get a proper orientation to the study of the liberal arts? The answer to this is with the first subject, which is grammar. However, bear in mind that we no longer understand what the liberal art of grammar is or even means. We think that it somehow pertains to the proper use of our spoken and written languages. Yet, as I stated in my first talk, Introduction to the Liberal Arts, this is only the tip of a very large iceberg. For me, this is fortunate because as a writer, I often make grammatical errors when I'm writing. And I'm quite used to other people pointing these out to me. In one of my books, I created a glossary of terms. Having done so, a kind student pointed out to me that I had fallen to the use of a tautology, a pointless double statement. In this way do I then learn more about grammar, and as a result, my writing hopefully improves. Yet as a subject belonging to the ancient liberal arts, there are much more exciting features that eclipse any worries about falling to grammatical errors. Would it surprise you if I pointed out that the liberal art of grammar will give us the key to the whole world? And by world, I mean that greater whole of which we are a part. Would it also surprise you that this key is at the same time connected with our personal use of an incredible creative power? One that for many ancient cultures was seen to be so enormous that it was considered supreme. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the power of the word. To understand this power, think back to some of the old stories, myths, and accounts of the creation of the world. Surely it is no coincidence that many of these attribute the creation of the world to the utterance of a certain word or words. A good example of this is ancient Egypt, whose divine scribe, the ibis-headed god Thoth, was said to have first conceived the world in the realms of thought. Having done so, Thoth then uttered the words necessary to bring that world into actual being. His consort was the great Seshat, the ancient Egyptian goddess of wisdom, often portrayed with what appears to be a seven-rayed star above her head. These rays clearly signify the seven aspects or expressions of wisdom, which very much later then coalesced into what we now call the seven liberal arts. Similar ideas are reflected in the Vedic wisdom of India, Consider the vocable Om that signifies that primal vibration from which everything in the world came into being. Even the notion itself is incredible to consider. Thousands of years ago, the great rishis of India sensed that the essence of the universe lay in a vibration, a sound, a word. That sound is also Brahma clashing upon the symbols to announce the commencement of the world creation. It is the conch of Vishnu, signalling the arrival of yet another avatar. It is also the Shabda, the divine sound current flowing through the universe like a silver stream, bringing enlightenment to all who apprehend it. 
hence that great emphasis upon intoning this great mantra Om. It is to attune oneself to the primal vibration that is the root and cause of the all. In this sense, Om signifies the vital shimmering essence of the universe, of which everything that we are, know or do is a direct expression. Yet we need not always look to the East for such profound ideas. Just think about the fiat looks of the biblical book of Genesis. God said, let there be light, and there was light. In this way, to name something was at the same time to create it. The very secret of creation, in other words, lay in grammar. Then there is St. John who begins his gospel with the epic words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word is at the same time the ancient Greek logos, the divine reason and order behind the cosmos itself. In some accounts the word was conceived in a more musical sense as a song. As a musician this idea really fascinates me. It appears with the Celtic idea of Oran Mor, the great song of life in which we all play a part. Its strains can be heard everywhere providing, of course, that we are prepared to listen out for them. It is a song of our ancestors, of the fairy folk, of the gods and goddesses of old, and its echoes can still be heard in the wild forest. As an idea, it's beautifully conveyed, not just through music, but also through the intricate knots of Celtic artwork, composed more often than not of one single strand that follows the most intricate possible path, evocatively depicting the fundamental sense of unity of which Oran Moore is the perfect expression. Consider also the Native American myth of Spider-Woman, who from the web of her dreams sung the world into being. Thought of as Grandmother Spider, she has been and still is revered and respected as the source and font of all wisdom. She is the creatrix, the universal web or loom, whose subtle threads continually shimmer and vibrate to produce the eternal song of creation. Each of these accounts, regardless of the culture from which they originate, say something important about the world of which we are all a part. The clue to this lies in the nature of a word. A word is a vibration, a tremor of the air in response to a certain stimulus. Through words that vibration can be given a characteristic shape identity and character. When we learn what these signify, we can then understand what another person is trying to communicate to us. However, think what this says about the world as an expression of the word. Although the world appears to our senses to be solid and substantial, underneath it is composed of nothing but fields of vibrating energy. What we perceive to be solid is energy moving at one speed, while the gaseous is energy moving at another. So consider this thought. What if there was just one primal field of energy underlying it all? What if everything was simply a modification of that one energy? It means that what we see to be a cup is not what we think it is. It is not a stable object. It is simply vibrating energy in a state of transit. Consequently, if we come back in a thousand years, we'll probably find that the cup is gone. The energy from which the cup was made is not gone, however. It has simply changed form. Now in a world of solid objects, words have only a brief, transitory power. 
However, in a world composed of energy in a state of vibration, the picture then becomes quite different. All of a sudden, words acquire the most tremendous power. Words are the vibrating patterns that we can use to help bring forth our reality from the shimmering sea of energy that is the universe. And just think of the difference that the use of certain words can make. What kind of world do you want to live in? Because whatever kind of world that is, it can be shaped, summoned and called forth through the sheer power of your words. Therefore the words hate, difference, division and discord call forth one kind of world, while the words love, togetherness, union and harmony call forth another. The choice is of course ours. 